The following podcast contains strong language. Hello and welcome back to the Cine Rambles podcast. Now before we get into this week's episode, I've got a bit of a technical announcement to make. Um, so as we are now under lockdown here in the UK, this episode was recorded remotely uh, over a voice over IP software, as opposed to how we usually do it with us both in the same room at the same time. Uh, so this one was recorded, you know, with us in our separate houses. Uh, it's the first time we've done it, and unfortunately there's been a bit of a technical hiccup, and long story short, my side of the conversation, uh, that recording, is essentially unusable because of a problem with my computer, which I didn't notice till after we'd finished the record. And unfortunately we didn't really have time upon discovering this to go ahead and re-record the episode and get it ready for Friday. So, basically this week is going to be a bit of a Frankenstein job. Um, I'm going to be combining uh, salvageable bits of the episode, uh, mainly involving Andrew, uh, with some stuff we've recorded on previous weeks, and I'll be adding um, a couple of stuff I'm recording now just on my own to sort of uh, try and get it to a sort of normal length uh, episode. Uh, but you're pleased to know I have worked out what went wrong, and next week's episode should be uh, back to the normal standard of episodes. Uh, and also, Andrew is uh, in perfect health, pretty much. Uh, after last week's episode, uh, it turned out it was basically just a headache and he's fine. So, no panic there either. Um, but yeah, so, <laughs> on to the episode. Uh, we'll be starting with Field of Streams, so here's Andy's recommendations. Yeah, well, I've got two. Two things. Um, so there's The Boys, which is an Amazon Prime original series. Um, it's based on a comic book, I think. Um, so it's yeah, it's about superheroes, and it's essentially what if the DC superheroes, so you know, like Super Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, Aquaman, all that. What if they were actually money grabbing assholes? <laughs> I mean, it's well, but you know, Superman is like stands for justice or whatever. And he's an inherently a good person, and it keeps showing you, he's like, oh, he actually just wants to live on a farm and have a nice life. Whereas this guy is all about having all of the power, being really rich. He just doesn't really care about people. It's all a show for the camera to make him look as good as possible. You know, and he's like, we'll just straight up kill people, <laughs> and has just doesn't care at all. And it's like, what can you do as a normal person to try and fight against these superheroes who are unbelievably powerful and corrupt, just, you know, horrible people. So the so they're the antagonists. So all the superheroes are the, like, antagonists. And there's a group called The Boys who are trying to take, take them down, essentially, or, or expose them for being corrupt yeah and so the he's not the lead character but he's one of the lead characters is uh played by carl urban i have to say yeah from dread lord of the rings uh he's bones in star trek he is an absolute standout in this he's so good he's really funny he's just brilliant excellent acting in it throughout he's 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 great but what i I like most about it's like a very refreshing and alternative look 
of the superhero genre. You know, because yeah. we get all of these things. I mean, there used to be three big Marvel ones spammed out every year and loads of others on top of it. It's starting to peter out, which is nice. And this just takes a look of it and, and it twists it and it's very good. And I like, I like the alternative that it's giving you. So the second one is I Am Not Okay With This which is uh, on Netflix. So that is basically this girl, I think she's 16, 17. Um, she discovers she has superpowers, basically. Like, Carrie is obviously a huge influence on this. It Loads of Stephen King stuff is, really. It's only seven episodes long. They're all really short. They're all only about, uh, you know, sub 30 minutes. Yeah. I, I watched the entire thing in one sitting. Yeah. So it's very doable. Yeah. It's good. I, I enjoy it. It's very... So I'll say the bad things first. Because <laughs> why not? Okay. It It's very teenage melodrama. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's not a problem because it, it it works. I think they use it to their advantage. Um, it's more like their her. You know, it's more like an updated version of Carrie, basically. Although it does seemingly is set in a weird, like timeless era. I mean, they've got smartphones and stuff, but then. All the cars are really old, and yeah. Yes, but so. So I I thought, yeah, I thought more. I got really strong, it, feels from it, especially as the two. Well, the two lead actress, uh, the actress and the actor are both in it, but I feel like. Yeah, so he is the, the Jewish boy who, you know, oh, okay. yeah, him. <laughs> um, I can't remember his name in it. Is it Stanley is in there as well? Is he called Stanley Uris? I think he might be called... Yeah. I think he might be called Stan in both of the things. Anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, the reason I get it feels is because I feel, again, I mean, you're all right, it's got the Stranger Things thing to it, but I think with those actors, but also like, you know, the tiny town in nowhere America, you know, that sort of this backdrop and there's, you know, there's nothing broad for these characters and it's just got a very very intense Stephen King feel to it more than a Stranger Things feel to it I think because I never no point was I like oh she's like 11 it's always like oh no she's like Carrie isn't it well it's not that it, it's not that it reminds me of Stranger Things in that sense but more just because obviously Stranger Things is like this flagship series for Netflix that's all about a teenage girl psychic power it's like Oh, Netflix has created another series about a teenage girl psychic powers, and like, I can imagine it's sort of in that shadow of it. But yeah, it's yeah. very much not. That, the similarity to Stranger Things are 
minimal yeah it's just yeah i feel like it's it's definitely more a uh stephen king you know tribute than anything else i think it's okay that so another problem i have with it is it's the voiceover <laughs> i five yeah it's the whole thing She's writing in her diary and she's telling you, you know, how she feels about, oh, where are these powers coming from? How she is just discovering that she doesn't like, you know, she fancies girls and she's like, oh, that's why I didn't like this bloke. And it's like, well, yeah, fine. The, the only thing I didn't like, it's like, it felt really forced in. Like there were some scenes that would have been a lot more emotionally poignant if they hadn't had her voice over in it. Yeah, I mean, that's probably fair. I think it's, it would probably, probably lose something to remove it entirely. Yeah, I wouldn't remove it entirely. Because no, I do like having her train of thought, but there's some bits that's like, this would have been a lot more powerful if you just hadn't said anything. I think it's got potential. Okay, so on to my recommendations for this week's Field of Streams. Uh, first one I want to talk about is Climax which is the most recent feature from Gaspar Noé, as long as you don't count Lux Eterna, but then that's still only at Cannes. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so Gaspar Noé, famous for the likes of Irreversible and Ends of the Void, both quite famously sort of sensory overload kind of films, as well as quite dark and disturbing in their subject matter and just overall tone. Um, and while Climax, as far as I understand, is probably the tamest work of his, it's definitely still in that kind of ballpark. Um, so it's basically um, an adaptation of a French urban legend concerning a dance troupe who um, was sort of trapped in a school over winter and by the time the authorities found them it sort of descended into madness and murdered each other basically. So yeah, that pretty much gives you the idea of how the film would go. Um, in fact, actually, in terms of the sort of trajectory of the story, it reminds me a bit of Lord of Flies as if what would happen if Noé tried to adapt it but for a sort of a drug-addled neon haze as the likes of what you'd see from like Winding Refn or presumably the rest of uh, Noé's work. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting film in the way it's structured because it's sort of, so it starts as apparently a lot of Noé's films do with sort of the end credits at the beginning um, and then we sort of lead in with a sort of a, about 10-20 minute sequence of talking heads of the sort of main characters um, of which, interesting to note, uh, besides Sophia Butella, who is sort of the closest thing to a central protagonist, uh, the rest of the cast are all non-actors in the same vein as something like City of God, and are in fact professional dancers, um, which combined with the fact I believe they improvised a lot of the scripts, like I think they shot with a five-page screenplay, um, it gives the whole kind of uh, film and the, the character interaction a very sort of genuine, authentic kind of feel to it, which I think adds a lot of weight to the horrors of the later half of the film. Um, but anyway, yeah, so we open with this sort of 10 to 20 minutes talking heads of introducing these characters um, and their sort of backstories and their sort of relationships with each other. Um, and then we get into the film itself, which is essentially in two parts, and it sort of reminds me a lot, and I think even the way sort of attested this, of like a roller coaster. So in the build-up, we have them sort of like dancing around, uh, chatting, having fun, sort of generally playing about. But at the same time, there's these tensions boiling under the surface, and we start to see how these characters interact with each other and why... You know, what you can sort of see where things are going to go astray. The sort of the warning signs. Then, as we reach about the halfway point of the film, about forty-five minutes in, 
there's this really sort of hypnotic kind of dance sequence. They're all sort of standing around in a circle and each character takes in turns to go into the centre and do their bit, sort of this character will dance, which has like quite an animalistic quality to it, as if a sort of the humanity starting to escape from this or descending into a more primal level, you know, to keep it in with the Lord of the Flies kind of analogy. Um, then we get the titles uh, over the middle and it's sort of this build-up of music, and then it feels like we reach the climax uh, in the sort of proper term. Uh, before the whole film sort of descends into this depraved chaos and like a roller coaster just falls down everything cascades out of control as um, the spiked punch which is sort of what's happened to them the sort of the uh, inciting incident I suppose um, you know starts to wreak it, uh, take its toll on them all um, so yeah it's definitely um, a, a film of sort of great sort of audio visual flair like um so firstly, the soundtrack is um, full of artists like uh, Daft Punk and Aphex Twin and Giorgio Moroder, um, all sort of, you know, big names of sort of that 90s uh, techno and sort of uh, EDM kind of scene, which is obviously very much the sort of the style the film's going for, and I think it is set in the late 90s as well. Um, and well, I mean, I'm, I'm no music critic, so I can't speak too much on the importance of the music, but um, certainly as a film critic, it, it really goes with that atmosphere and that aesthetic it really but it really sort of underlays from a sort of just pulsing horrific vibe to it which I think is really successful um the other thing is the cinematography um not only is there some really good uses of sort of like bold sort of colors specifically like red lights in particular and sort of shadows um there's also um the that last 45 minutes of the film the sort of the descent as far as I remember it's sort of shot in a Birdman style to sort of emulate a single take which it does very well but not only is it doing that single take, it's also, uh, the camera's never still and never straight. It's all sort of swaying or sort of uh, dutching from side to side, or it, at one point, uh, several points actually, it's, you know, turning all the way upside down. But it's always sort of moving in some kind of strange, hypnotic, kind of like, unusual way, which I think is, you know, really adds that sort of um, dissociation and sort of um, confusion and disorientation, uh, that was the word, disorientation of the scene and the film. Uh, which is really fantastic. Um, and also, as I mentioned before, that the performances, um, of course, really carry the film. And especially considering... It's really strange how whenever you get non-actors in a film like City of God or in Climax, they always seem to do such a fantastic job. It's like, why do we have actors in the first place? <laughs> but, yeah, um, those are the main sort of big strengths of the film. One thing I will say is it's... Um, well, I mean, the, the central premise is quite tight, and... Uh, Story-wise, the film doesn't do really much more than it needs to, um, which is a good thing. But on the downside, it does mean there's not necessarily enough depth to it to really make it like sort of a masterpiece. I'd say, you know, it it doesn't quite give you. Um, I think the thing is with so many characters, and we can only sort of see so much of them through this kind of um, story. It doesn't quite reach levels levels of depth. So I think it needs to really be like a fantastic sort of like five-star film. Um, but I mean really other than that there's not a whole lot to complain about it's a really solid, really disturbing but really well made kind of film and it's, you know certainly from the aspect of like sort of um, pure cinema it's this, this sort of combination of sound and vision that really sort of like shocks you to your core, it's fantastic it's definitely made me want to go watch more Gaspar Noé as well um, which hopefully I'll be rectifying soon as long as I can uh, get a hold of most of his films uh, Enter the Void in particular is proving quite difficult to get a hold of um but yeah, so that's my first recommendation. Uh, definitely as well, watch it on the biggest screen you can um, with surround sound if possible. 
because really kind of film that needs it. And that's on Netflix. Um, the other film I want to talk to, which is also on Netflix, um, is Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro. Now, I'm sure most people are aware of that now uh, Studio Ghibli has put, uh, as far as I understand, all of their films, or at least most of the you know main films of their catalogue, on Netflix, um, which is fantastic, because those films you know, have always been quite expensive to obtain. It's great that more people get access to them and uh, be exposed to them, because they are really fantastic. But uh, the one that always gets o overlooked, and that's also been added as part of this, is uh, Lupin III, uh, which isn't really a Studio Ghibli film, but what it is is the debut feature of Hayao Miyazaki, who of course directed Spirit of the Way and Princess Mononoke, and basically all the, the really big, um, successful films of Studio Ghibli. Um, but this was his first film he made before Studio Ghibli was assembled. Um, so while it's not a Ghibli film as such, it's definitely, if you if you like that, you'll like this too. Um, uh, spiritually closest to something like, uh, I guess maybe Laputa, uh, and maybe an element of Porco Rosso as well. Uh, but yeah, so essentially it's about, uh, so Lupin III is this, uh, I think he was in a manga first, um, and then he's had a series of films, but essentially he's sort of a, uh, this ongoing uh, character in Japanese fiction, uh, sort of like a wisecracking sort of um, thief of a sort of, um, I'd say sort of like 30s era sort of gangster almost. Uh, you know, he's got a sort of um, the hat and sort of a Tommy gun sort of, yeah, he's always got a quip for every um, every situation in the, sort of, in the sort of Sonic the Hedgehog sense. But uh, yeah, it's... To be honest, story-wise, it's nothing like sort of um, groundbreaking. It's essentially uh, the, there's a big castle and there's sort of an evil king who lives in it, and he's got a whole load of treasure, and Lupin wants to steal that treasure, and then he finds out there's also a princess in the castle. Fancies he'll sort of uh, save her as well. It's basically as, as far as the plot goes. Um, but, you know, it's Hayao Miyazaki, so of course it's stupendously animated, full of some really interesting, exciting, and imaginative set, set pieces, it's sort of got that Indiana Jones kind of like Saturday morning serial kind of vibe to it, in a, you know, in the best possible way, in that really sort of like rip-roaring kind of adventurous fun. Um, also, uh, probably rare for the recommendations in this podcast, you could watch it with the family as well. It's, it'll be perfect sort of family viewing, uh, I think. Children of all ages probably enjoy it. Um, and adults will love it as well, because, I mean, the, you know, again, beautiful animation and... Uh, from what I remember, Lupin is a really, really funny character. He's always got some fantastic lines. Not any that I can quote right now, because it has been a while since I watched it. Um, but yeah, if you've been at all interested in the Studio Ghibli stuff available on Netflix, do check out Lupin the Third as well, because if you loved those films, you'll most likely love that as well. And it often does get overlooked. So yeah, those are my Field of Streams recommendations. So this week we're going to do another fundamental. We need a jingle for that. Do, 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 do. There you go. <laughs> You're welcome. I'll sample that. Uh, so, fundamental is when a film is adapted from a book or a novel or a comic or whatever, and it makes a subtle change to the script, to the characters. A seemingly to subtle a, change. Yeah, a seemingly subtle change. Or, you know, even to a line of dialogue or a tiny action that just fundamentally changes the characters or the scene or something so that it is just inherently different and and most of the times worse yeah. in the film. Last time I did Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. This time I'm doing Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows. 
Is this leading on from the same idea, or is this a different... No, the last time I had the problem with Harry's character, and mm. Dumbledore's, by extension, and this time, it's Harry, but more... Uh, more on Voldemort this time. Okay. And, and actually, the whole climactic scene of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, because they split the book in two for some reason, and you've said you have seen... I have seen, yeah, both films. I saw part two in the cinema on the first day it came out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. In 3D. <laughs> oh, 3D's so important now. Yeah. Okay, so, just quickly, um, it's literally the final showdown of Harry versus Voldemort. So, I'll just, like I did last time, I'll go through each one and then explain what the, the big detail is that really is the fundamental. So, in the book, Harry pretends to be dead up to a point. Uh, they all go into the Great Hall in Hogwarts, um, where all the good guys get a load of allies and start beating back the, uh, the Death Eaters and Voldemort, to the point where it's only Voldemort and um, Bellatrix are left alive. Right. Well, not left alive, left... Unarrested. Or... Unarrested, you know, still standing. Yeah. Bellatrix gets beaten by Molly Weasley. Oh yeah, that's... Oh no, that is in the film, isn't it? But it is it's not as interesting as it was in the book. No. Because remember that being like a really intense... That's a really pivotal and really yeah. good moment And in such the a great book. culmination of character in the yeah. book around them. In the film it's sort of just... It's, a, it's sort of there, but not very well. Yeah. But also it's such a good moment in the, in the book because you always see Mrs. Weasley as like... Oh, she's just the mother figure and she's always trying to stop Harry getting into danger and like, oh no, you can't go into the battle, you're too young. She says that to Ginny. Yeah. And as soon as she, she's, as soon as she sees Ginny in danger, she like pushes her out the way and is like... Full on badass yeah. <laughs> And it's such a good moment in the book. And in the film it lasts like two minutes and it's kind of boring. <laughs> not yeah. boring, well, but you boring. know, it's, it's just not, not It's done. not got... In the, I remember in the book being like this particularly stand-up moment. Like it's quite a few pages of, yeah. of their fight, isn't and it? And it's one of the, like, the use of... I think there's about three swear words in, oh, yes. in the whole Harry Potter series. And that's one of them, but it's like, that's such a is good it, moment as well. Like, aliens, get away from her, you bitch. Yeah, it is exactly that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you reckon that was a deliberate reference? Possibly. Might have been, yeah. I, you know what, I think, I don't think I've read the book since I've watched a... No, that can't be true. I don't know. Anyway, okay. keep going. Anyway, so then Harry uh, was under his invisibility cloak. He jumps out and he's like, stop it, I'm gonna... Surprise. Surprise. <laughs> and then he has this... I say jewel because they don't properly jewel. He starts circling... I thought you were talking about vapes then. <laughs> Him and uh, Voldemort start circling each other and they have a conversation where he's explaining how he's alive and how Voldemort cannot possibly beat him. Right? This okay. is in the film. No, this, this is, is in the book. book. Okay. In the film, Harry and Voldemort, he goes up to... Uh, he reveals himself way earlier than he does in the book. They also... Harry then starts running away from Voldemort as Voldemort shoots spells at him, randomly. And then they have the weird hugging match. <laughs> Which I, I remember being, because it was in the trailer and I saw it in the film, I was like, this really does not, it's such a, you can see it was so clearly made for the trailer and all yeah. shoehorned into the film. Because it yeah. seems so strange as a moment. But it's so out of place and weird. And like, yeah. you never see, like, so they're apparating, but not really apparating how they apparate anywhere at all else in the series mm. they're like floating around in weird smoke balls like I mean, wrestling each face. other yeah like massaging each other and it's like 
what is going on? And then they land and they like flop down and they both grab each other's ones and start dueling, but they're like spells connect and there's loads of weird explosions. Same as Wand and Goblet of Fire. Yes. Which works in Goblet of Fire because he needs that connection of the ones to have the ghost come out and tell him what to do or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, so what the annoying part is, right? So instead of in the book we get this conversation and you finally understand why Harry's still alive, what the whole connection is, and why Harry can beat Voldemort and why Voldemort it will never win against Harry. But then also Harry does something which defines his character. He tries to get Voldemort, he's like Firstly, he starts to call him Tom Riddle, which humanises him, bringing him down to his level. Yeah. So well, a big part of it is, if you think about the staging in the book, they are circling each other. They are complete equals. In this point, it's only those two. In the film, Voldemort is still chasing Harry. Harry is still inferior to Voldemort. Voldemort is chasing Harry, and they dive off the cliff together, and it's really weird, right? And you still think, oh, Voldemort's this big, strong thing. Whereas in the book, they are equals. And you're like, okay, they are, they are, this is it. <laughs> this is the end. Anyway, but Harry offers Voldemort, he's like, think about what you've done and try for some remorse. Right, because remorse is the only way to restore your soul. Think right? about what you've done, like sending a child to his room. Yeah, but like try for some remorse because it's the only way your soul can heal or you're going to spend eternity suffering or whatever. And he's like... But he offers his one greatest enemy, the person he knows has killed hundreds of people, including his parents, including his, his best mates, you know. He's killed so many people and he still offers him mercy, right? And like, that's such a defining point because that's like... Harry Potter cannot get a bigger person than offering essentially wizard Hitler <laughs> mercy because he's like... You have to at least try. Yeah. You know. This Obviously, is your chance to Yeah, redeem this yourself. is your try. Like, that's such a good moment in the book, because it's like... That's like... Uh, and they just don't do that in the film at all. There's no indication of that at all. Because he's still like, oh, he hates Voldemort. And it's like, well, yeah, but so what? It's like that offering of mercy, that, like, try for the remorse so your soul can at least attempt to heal... It's like, you know, that def makes such a big difference to Harry's character. Because instead of being this very merciful, benevolent character, he's just like, oh yeah, he's just some random kid again. Hmm. It's just annoying. <laughs> and also, the, the other thing is, I've got a quote. Oh, you got a quote? Yep. <clears throat> is this from the book or the film? From the book. Okay. So, in the book, they do the one connecting thing and then the snake Neville kills the snake and then for some reason Harry's spell even though it's a disarming spell kills Voldemort right <laughs> exactly <In the laughs> your book. face no in the in the film okay right and then Voldemort starts to his hand cracks and he starts to die away so I'll get onto that in a second so in the book it says he was killed by his own rebounding curse so Harry hits yeah. him quicker with the... than with the disarming spells yeah. Voldemort's wand flips out of his hand and then he gets killed essentially by his own spell. Okay. Yeah? He gets killed by himself. So Harry's soul is still pure <laughs> and whole because it's Voldemort's basically killed himself. Right? But they don't do that. Again, it's just Harry's killed him with a spell that wouldn't kill Voldemort. <laughs> and it's like, this is dumb. Right? And also, 
then in the film, Voldemort's body then like disintegrates and yeah, becomes been flaky and weird. Yeah, like he's been. Or he stop using his medicated shampoo. I've got another quote from the book. Okay. Tom Riddle hit the floor with a mundane finality. Because the whole point of it was to prove that's a that great it, phrase, mundane finality, isn't it? Though, mm. like that's a really good phrase. But the whole point of it is to prove that Voldemort wasn't special. Wasn't special. He was always a man, even though Voldemort tried so hard to make himself immortal. He was still, at the end of the day, just a man. That's why mundane finality is such a good like. Because it sums up perfectly. He just fell to the floor perfectly. like any other body. Exactly. But they make him float away and flaky like he's died like some fucking ghost like man. he's transcending to another plane. <laughs> exactly, and it's like, that's not right. That completely, fundamentally changes the whole point of his death scene, though. It's like, all the other times anyone has been hit by a, a killing curse, they just fall, flop down dead. It's like, why wouldn't Voldemort do that? The whole point is proving that he would do that because he's just a man. He's not the devil incarnate or whatever. Hmm. And it's, it's so annoying <laughs> that they change that, but that's such a small change. But it completely, like, ruins the point of this, the, this climax, you know? So do you think the point of a change was to make it more cinematic? Well, absolutely. Like, if you, because you think about it, if you, if you read the book, the final chapter or the chapter before the final chapter whatever is is literally them just talking mm. and they have this conversation and it's very good conversation because you learn loads of secrets and stuff and it's really good and it's really tense and you get this you know excellent descriptions but that would not have translated very well to screen i don't think maybe uh, probably they could have done it I feel the reason they did what they did is because they needed a big explosion a, cinematic. A long drawn ending. out dialogue scene is rarely what you want in the middle of a, the climax of a blockbuster. That's a yeah. Thing, or at least as far as the studio is concerned. But it's just such a shame that they changed it. Because, like, that. The whole point, like, Harry's like, oh, I'm not scared of him because he's just a man. And then they change that <laughs> and make him float away as if he's not just a man. <laughs> They do the same thing randomly with Bellatrix Lestrange as well. She ex- well, she explodes, doesn't she? Well, no, she gets the dusted as well, as if I thought... Thanos snapped her as well randomly. Because I thought, the, from what I remember of her death, was because she gets all like um, turned to stone or something by thingy and then exploded. Uh, possibly. I remember that's... her being dusted as well, but I could be wrong. I think that's because she's yeah, because she used um, Reducto. Uh, I yeah. think that's why that is. Okay, if I remember. So that one's all right. Yeah. But there you go. That's that's, that's a fundamental how it fundamentally changed. Any any comments? No, I mean that's I I agree with you from what, what yeah. you said. That's that is a pretty not only is a fundamental change. It also makes a lot more sense in the book. Yeah, that Harry's a better person, and Voldemort also, is just a, a man who was corrupted by the dark side, so to speak. Yeah, but he but he was as well. But it, it also shows how even right at the end, you know, faced with the most evil wizard that ever has ever lived, Harry still offers him one final chance. It's like, this is your last chance to to say sorry, to apologise, to be a better man. He literally tells him in the book, be the be a better man. There's also a problem I find, especially with stuff aimed relatively at children, mm. when you've got like a big villain who's put as being on a pedestal, like, oh, you know, you're telling your children you can't ever be as bad as him because he's... He's not like us. He was he's some other creature of a you know above being human. Yeah. But if you show him as being just a man, you know, there's that you know, it could be 
like a normal person, there's that idea that, you know, anyone, he was just like anyone else, but he took the wrong path and don't take the wrong path because he could end up like him. Yeah. But by making him like, oh, but he, he disintegrates when he dies and always, he's not like a real person. It puts him on that pedestal where it's like, oh, what, you know, don't worry about becoming like him. So I think it's, it's a lot better to have a villain who is actually human and at the end is just as pathetic as anyone else is and, you know, yeah. just dies normally. I'm, as with mundane finality. Yeah. <laughs> I love that phrase. That's it's great. really good, isn't it? Yeah. But also how Harry, right at the end, I mean, he's been calling him Voldemort the entire time and then mm. right at the end, right in that final thing, he starts calling him Riddle, or Tom yeah. Riddle again. Isn't that humanisation? Because it... it Voldemort's power is in his name, isn't it? Like, people are so afraid to say Voldemort that they call him he who must not be named. Which is probably a thing he set up in the first place. Exactly, well, he did, yeah. yeah. But Harry goes further than that to even say, you know, he's not even calling him Voldemort, he's calling him Tom Riddle, which is his actual name, which Voldemort hates. It's like... Hmm. Which they do sort of in the film. Like, he says, oh, come on then, Tom. Like, once, it's like, oh, piss off. Oh, come along, Tom. Let's come on then, picnic. Tom. Let's have a weird face massage. And then you were right, because what you pointed out, we, we watched the scene, um, it was like trying to show that, oh, they're the same person. It's like, no, they're not. <laughs> the point is that while they have, you know, this pairing thing, that Harry is a fundamentally much better yeah. person. That was supposed to be the whole point of the film. Certainly, I think in Order of Phoenix, the whole idea was like, yeah, yeah. oh, yeah, just because they're attached doesn't mean he's like, I'm not like you. There's a whole speech about, I'm yeah, not. Yeah, exactly. That's the, to then make it like in Deathly Hallows Part 2, it's like, oh, look at them merging together because the same person. Like, no, 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 no. You've done a whole film about how they're not the same person. But also, like, that's <laughs> the whole point is that they will never be the same person because Harry is just inherently a good person. Yeah, and he has mercy. Not. Exactly, he has mercy, which they just don't show and they're like, oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, there's there's a mirror there, but it's not... The point is that he's, he's becoming more than that as he's rising above it. Mm. Whereas in the film, it's just like, oh, yeah, he happened to kill him first. It's like... It just completely ruins it, doesn't it? <laughs> it's just annoying. It was like the Harry Potter version of hand shot first. <laughs> well, it is sort of. It's like, oh yeah, for some unknown reason, killing Voldemort's snake makes Harry's spell beat him. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. The point is, like, the snake's like a horcrux, right? Which yeah. means if Voldemort, if Harry had killed Voldemort, he could have come back. You yeah. know, this immortality. It's like, no, Harry's killed all the horcruxes. So now it is it's, just 1v1. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's just annoying. <laughs> That's the end of another fundamental. Unless you've got, have you got something I mean, else? There there. is one other go thing. On, go on, yeah. go on. <laughs> so in the end of Deathly Hallows Part 2, so there's a whole thing about the Elder Wand, right? Oh, this is what I thought you were going to talk about originally. Oh, well, I may as well mention it yeah. as well. Harry fucking snaps it in half and throws it off the bridge, right? Yeah. Firstly, this is supposed to be the most powerful thing that has ever existed, and he just breaks it easily. It's yeah, like, it can be used for good, but, you know, yeah. never mind that. But also in the book, he's like, he repairs his wand, his Holly and Phoenix Feather wand, which is the wand he, you know, beat Voldemort with numerous times and whatever. And he repairs that. It's like, the only way I can repair it is with a, a wand that's more powerful than any other. So he repairs his wand, and he has it back, and then he puts the elder one back in Dumbledore's grave because yeah. he's like it was his wand it was his wand but he's always like if I never get defeated I the wand's power will end 
and I, I, I'll, you know, and I'll live a normal life, and it'll be fine. Or she just fucking breaks it and ruins it. It's like there's been this whole film, lo- like or two films long, talking about wand lore and how important it is, and the intricacies of it, and she just fucking breaks it. It's like that shouldn't happen. <laughs> that shouldn't be able to happen. And the whole point of the elder wand is that it can't be broken. Because it's the Elder One. <laughs> it's this supernatural, super powerful one that can't just be snapped in half. Because why don't you think anyone has snapped it in half before? Who's going to win? The most powerful ones in all resistance or two breaky hands? <laughs> and then he just chucks it off a bridge and keeps Malfoy's one. It's like, no, at least have it. If at least give Malfoy's one back. But, but also at least he, like fix your one that you're so attached to rather than just keeping Malfoy's one. Yeah. It's like the whole point is that you keep fix the... <laughs> Sorry. Oh, poor God. microphone. Yeah, poor microphone. So, would you say really triggered by it? To what extent does that affect your opinion of Deathly Hallows Part Two, the film? The film, when it came out in cinemas, I I did enjoy it. Hmm. I liked it. It was it was good. Watching it back now, I'm like, I have no incentive to ever watch that film again because I've got the book. Yeah, and for well, for reference, the last CD so of the audiobook of for Deathly Hallows is stuck in my car. <laughs> I've listened to the last CD, which is the last two chapters, probably close to 50, 60 times, which is why I'm so, I know it so well. Why do you keep the book? Why do Why do you keep listening to it then if it's stuck in your car? Oh, because every, every time I don't have anything else to listen to, I just listen to it, so it's fine. We've well, not tried to get it out. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Anyway, if you didn't borrow that CD from anyone, I did. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> is that the end? Is we finished the fundamentals? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, you have been listening to Cine Rambles with Nick and Andrew. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com/slash Cine Rambles Official and on Twitter at Cine Rambles. And if you'd like to read more content, you can go to the blog at cinerambles.blogspot.com. And as always, if you'd like to send in any comments, any reviews, any viewpoints, or anything else you'd like read out on the show, you can email them to cinerambles at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye.